Let me read for us. So it's verses 1 to 16. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints, the holy ones, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body growth, body's growth in building itself up in love. Now, at this point in a series, you can start to wonder, uh, is it really worth continuing? We're just going to keep hearing the same thing. And as you know, we're working our way through Ephesians. But the rationale for moving through a book like this is actually because there's a, there is generally, mostly, rhyme and reason to how a letter develops. I can, I can think of a few letters I wrote to Elisa, my wife, when she kept breaking up with me. And it was a long <laughs> distance relationship before reliable email. And some of those letters did wander a little bit and uh, probably didn't have that much of a rationale underlying its progression. But it seems different here in Ephesians, whereas when we get to Ephesians 4... There's a subtle change in emphasis. So Ephesians 1 to 3 seem to emphasise the changes that have occurred as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it's also a celebration of those changes. When you get to Ephesians 4, the shift seems to be that those changes require a change in the way that we live. So if you have a look at verse 1, Paul says, I therefore... The prisoner in the Lord beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And in the remaining chapters, you'll see there's this increasing emphasis on really that the rubber needs to hit the road in the Christian life. The rubber here of our calling needs to hit the road of how we live. We have to live in keeping with how we're now seen. And I've used this example before a little bit of, from, from my own marriage. Well, this didn't actually happen, but it could happen. You could imagine this happening. And that is, if I got to a point where I felt a little worn out in marriage and I said to my best man, you know what, I'm sick of being the married man. I think I'm going to live the life of a single guy now. 
he'd probably hurry over to our place, pull the album, photo albums out, find the one where we got married, where my lips are sort of saying something. And he says, what were you saying then? And I'd say, I do. And he'd say, at that point, we acknowledged publicly that a significant change had been made in your life and we only recognise the new married Lee Trevascus. So the single Lee Trevascus died and we're expecting you to live a life worthy of that new life, how we see you. And this is how Paul is speaking here. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling which you've been called. He's saying the rubber of your calling needs to hit the road of life. And it's with respect, he says, in particular, this calling to one body. So if you have a look at uh, verse 4, it's almost a creed that he has. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This was your calling. You need to live a life worthy of that calling, of that oneness. Now, I can't help but think that in the, the opening verse here, verse 1, that Paul is offering himself as an example of a person who is putting into action that which he understands in his own calling. Because he refers to himself as the prisoner in the Lord. Now, when Paul speaks of himself as a prisoner, and I think this must be very important for the book of Ephesians, though John Frederick, he can tell us whether I'm on the right track here, is it refers back to what we see in Acts 22, most likely, where Paul's arrested for what? He's arrested because he's said to have brought Greeks or Gentiles into the temple. And it seems as though this is very much on his mind. Because he did that, because he understands this creedal affirmation here. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And in living in accordance with that oneness, that calling, he finds himself in the temple with a Gentile and arrested. The rubber of his calling had really hit the road of how he lived. Do you see what I mean? That's how Paul lives it out. And so it seems to be in, on his mind in the book of Ephesians because he keeps coming back to this oneness we have in Christ. As though he's thinking of his arrest, his imprisonment for taking a Gentile who he regards himself as being one with in Christ. And so now he's urging us, pleads with us, to also live in keeping the fact that we are now one in Christ. It's a non-negotiable. And the way we're to go about this oneness, he suggests, or tells us, uh, comes out of this creedal affirmation, verse 4 and 5, is that we need to live in what we might call a peaceable difference with one another, because there will be differences, right? And we'll get back to that a little bit later. But look what he says in verse 2. If you're to live a life worthy of the calling which you've been called, it's with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So this is a very difficult thing to do. Um, it sounds beautiful. It sounds beautiful to talk about we're going to deal with each other in humility and gentleness with patience 
and so on. But it's very unnatural. So if I, if I, I you don't have to think of your own family uh, to see how unnatural this is. I've got a biological family, but it doesn't naturally tend towards being patient, gentle. The other day I walked downstairs and there was someone tied up, literally. It wasn't, it wasn't my wife and it wasn't one of my own children. It was just someone else who'd got out of sorts with one of the kids in a bit of a fight and tied him up. <laughs> that's, a, that's a true story. The, uh, the thing is, our family doesn't naturally uh, tend to operate in this way in the way it relates to one another. And it takes a lot of guidance and discipline on the part of the parents to try to encourage, hey, if we're going to be one family, then we're going to have to live with all humility and gentleness, with patience. So when, when okay, you don't like that song, but she does. Okay, so it's, it's a, you hate that music, but she loves it. She wants to play it. So how about you sit there and you listen Try to understand what she likes about it and what you don't like about it. And then what does that say about her? And then what does that say about you? And you've got bucklies of that working. But you keep on doing it. Do you know what I mean? You've got to keep training them. But that always has to happen by continuing to affirm the creed for our family. We're Travascuses, okay? So we're going to get through the photo album. This is when you're all born and so on like this. We are one blood here. So we're going to act in this way. I've got to keep, keep, keep sort of guiding them in this and disciplining them in this. And so what Paul's saying is for us, it's a matter of getting back to this creedal affirmation. Verse 4, there is one body and spirit, just as you are called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and so on, is to keep calling us back to, that's our calling. And so of course we should live with humility and gentleness and uh, I was about to say violence. No violence. Gentleness. Keep it at gentleness. And love for the building up of one another. Now, I was thinking about how does this relate? I mean, this, is, this isn't that difficult to do sometimes within our local church because people generally self-select out when they have big differences, right? There's also the odd person or two that you sort of think, you have your cup of tea and you sort of think, <laughs> But it's much more difficult on the broader scale of the church, the wider church, and yet we are all one. What's very, uh, what came to mind for me was the assembly that's coming up in July within the Uniting Church, uh, which will make a decision on marriage, or at least can hopes to make a decision on where it's going to go with marriage. Now, regardless of the outcome of the assembly, if it makes a decision, there'll be some people say, well, that's different from where I stand. What it means for us, though, in how we behave at that time is that we remember that we're one, but there will be a cost to us. So let's say that a traditional view of marriage is affirmed. Then the people, that the people who don't agree with that position will still have to say, hey, they're brothers and sisters. And they may be ostracised by society. They may say to society, well, my, my, my view is different and probably more aligned with yours. But they remain my brothers and sisters. I'm one with them. And so I'm going to show gentleness, humility, and I'm going to continue to keep that bond. By contrast, if you're, or, or by comparison, if it's a very different view of marriage from a traditional view is affirmed, 
then those people who, who uphold a traditional view of marriage, there'll be a cost in showing gentleness, humility, and love towards those who made that decision and those who di they differ from, because sometimes their own traditional context may despise them for showing love and understanding and generosity. But here's Paul, the prisoner in the Lord. So there's a cost, there's a cost for this of what he's asking us to do in displaying and behaving in a way that, that uh, it aligns with our calling to be one in Christ. This one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so on. It may cost, but we're called to love each other, to show what I would call a peaceable difference. But there's a purpose to this unity. That's sort of, if you want to say there are so many points in a text, you'd say, well, that's Paul's opening shot here, his opening point. Uh, that he expects now the rubber of our calling to hit the road of our life. But there's a purpose here in the text that he moves on to of our oneness, of remaining, not a fractious community, but one that shows love and acts as one body. And that is for the purpose of maturing the body of Christ to meet the challenges of living in this world. And look at the challenges. If you just drop down, we will look at that verses 7 uh, to 16, most of it. But drop down to verse 14, because Paul shows his hand here that there is a challenge for his church. It says, We must no longer be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. So he's aware that he's got a church uh, he, he, he's writing to a church room. It's very early in the church's history, okay? We're in the first century. It's not a majority. It's not the dominant power within the world. It's a very small church. It's still in a phase where it's trying to develop its own understanding of what just happened with the resurrection of Christ, you see? They're still working this out. And so there's all sorts of ideas flowing around. And he sees that as a threat or as a potential challenge. So if we're going to address this challenge, it's very important for us to remain one body because the way we'll meet that challenge is growing in our maturity and that's off the back of these gifts that God has given to his body. See verse 7, But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice it is saying, but each of us, because we're going to talk about various gifts in a moment. But it's talking about us, not an us and them. It's the body of Christ. We all receive gifts for ministering and serving and building up the church together. There's a little bit here in the middle, verses 8 through to 10. I'm not going to really deal with here, but I believe it's about and affirming that these gifts come from God himself by his spirit. And he says, verse 11, the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, perhaps sent ones, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. And then, so we can meet that challenge that we just discussed. Why should we be unified and live in a manner worthy of our calling? It's so that we can draw on the gifts, not just little quirks that people just happen to have, but gifts that God has given his body for its maturity. When we divide and fracture, 
We're saying, I don't need the gift that God gave that person to build me at all. I can do without it. But we're to grow via the gifts that God has given different people within the body, us, to mature the body so that they can meet the challenges. I should say, the challenges that I just mentioned for Paul, you could spend some time thinking, well, what are the equivalent challenges up for us? Because you'd have to say the church is in a similar situation where a declining uh, number of people, it seems, within our culture, our society, uh, you'd have to say with our children. My mind generally goes to children when I think, what are the challenges for faith? Uh, I think they're increasingly surrounded by people who may have hostile intentions when it comes to their faith. Uh, The plausibility structures of what could be true are changing rapidly to what we would call this disenchanted world where we're asking them to believe the Bible is God's word and yet people say, well, do you believe in fairies? I don't. Uh, So what does this mean to read the Bible in a disenchanted world? There are all these challenges that we face that are similar possibly to what Paul, the question of science. What What implications does science have for our faith? What about ethics? Right in the middle of this change in what our society thinks about marriage. What does that mean for our faith? Is it reasonable to keep believing? Well, I think Paul would say then, well, I think he says it here, that to meet that challenge is going to require this, this maintenance of a peaceable difference within the body of Christ, to which we've been called, so that we can benefit from the gifts that he's given us, which he mentions as... He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, this is getting very close to our very reason for being here at Trinity, isn't it? Because I suspect most of the people sitting here have at some time thought, you know, I feel as though God has gifted me as a teacher, as an evangelist, as a pastor, or we'd like to think people in your church, in your own local body of Christ have said, hey, I think you're a teacher. I I think you're an apostle. I think you're a a prophet. You seem to always be able to see the truth and call other people to it. And so we exist here at Trinity to equip you, to build you up, to help you hone your skills and that gift for the building up of of the wider church. So this is how whole reason for being. It's not to control you, so you've got to do it this way. It's trying to attend to your humanity as it's received this gift from God and to equip you so that you'll go out and build this body of Christ. So you will help my children meet the challenges that they face in this world. You'll help me meet challenges when I'm reading a newspaper. I think, well, what does that mean for my faith? Did it just fall over? No, I belong to a body of people equipped with all these gifts who speak into my life and put others around me to support me so that I continue on in the faith. Verse 15. Rather than being met by these challenges and blown about by every wind of doctrine and so on. Verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. It's very unlikely that you're aware 
of what I'm going to tell you now because the numbers at the Reds games have been so low lately. <laughs> but it used to annoy me. You go to a Reds game and there's this chant, its own creed. We are Red, we are one, we are family. I don't know if anyone knows it here, but I always, it's just trite. You pay 20 bucks at the gate to when I'm a fair weather friend. If they keep losing, I'm out of there sort of thing. <laughs> so so it, it's not like that, this creed. This creed, the, the way, we're not just this crowd at the Reds. We are viewed here as a body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it's equipped, as each part is working properly. When we say we are, we're not red, we are Christ's body, we are one, we're family. We are made up of these gifts, people with these gifts, for the continual building to meet this challenge that, that we face. I was trying to think of, of how I would apply this second point. The, the very reason I think why Paul is, is emphasising the need to remain one for the purpose of growing in maturity. And two things came to mind. The first is to do with something in my own life. The second relates directly to theological education. The first is, I was thinking about a friend, it's only recently, who just happens to be a literal creationist, right, which is miles and miles and miles away from me on that issue. Um, but I don't understand how he can maintain this worldview. And you may have that worldview. It's just for me, I find it incomprehensible. Uh, that, that's, that's just for me. I hope that people are not upset. And this is going out on the World Wide Web. <laughs> but, but, I, but sometimes I feel like just calling him out. And then, admittedly, sometimes I, I am aware that one of the children struggles with faith in terms of, well, if they're expected to believe this, you know, handed down from the family, they're challenged then in the context of school and things of the same. Sometimes I feel like just saying, I'm on my own with them, hey, mate, when you evolve from monkeys, I'll sort you, don't worry, it's okay. You know, that would be destructive, okay, destructive to his own family and the upbringing he's getting from his own but I look at this fellow, and sometimes I could be guilty of getting to a point where I think, you know what, in terms of our faith and our, uh, in terms of faith and our thinking about the life of Christian faith, he needs me more than I need him. Right? So I can take that superior posture of, I know that you're wrong, Genesis 1. I gotcha. <laughs> you, know, you need me more than I need you. <laughs> But it's only when, then, then when I was reflecting on, on this, so the, fact, the fact of the matter is, this is not fact, the fact of the matter is, that when I observe him uh, in life, the guy, the way he contributes and invests in the marginalised people of our society, and the sort of people, here am I with a cup of tea, for example, you know, wandering off like this, he, he steers right towards these people and invests in them and supports them. He doesn't have to, but he does. And I start realising, you know, he is modelling for me Christ-likeness in that. He's gifted, I'd say, as a pastor, the way he invests. In one sense, points out to me Christ-likeness in living as the body of Christ, how really you've got to stop just hanging with the people you like and start investing in a few other people as well who may be more difficult. Um, but in another sense, he also compliments me because he can compliment me in naturally putting that energy where it needs to go 
in a way that I'm just not gifted in the same way that he is. I need him as much as he needs me. And that's important for the maturing of the body of Christ. The other thing, and this is, this is what I'll, I'll finish on, is it relates to an academic issue that I hope may encourage you in your studies here. Um, the traditional, and I'm going to jump text here, I don't normally do that, but John 4 and the woman at the well. You know the story, you only have to say that. And hopefully you remember there's a story about Jesus coming to a well and a Samaritan woman at the well. Now, the traditional interpretation of that text, when it comes to the point where he says, why don't you go and see your husband or whatever, and she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, that's correct. You've had five husbands and the guy you shacked up with is not your husband. You know, <laughs> The traditional interpretation of that text, admittedly by Western white males, is that he exposes her as a morally loose woman yet fortunately offers her life-giving water. You know what I mean? So he exposes her sin. Yeah, you've had five husbands, and now you've got this other guy, right? Ted, what's his, for example. (laughs) (laughs) You've got all these blokes. You're a morally loose woman. And the point of this text is to say that Jesus can expose your sin as he does with a sinful woman, and yet he gives her life-giving water. That's been the traditional interpretation. Then a woman comes along called Teresa Acura. It's only back in 2009. Teresa is a Catholic sister of something. I don't, I, admittedly, I don't know if a sister makes her a nun or not. But let's just say she's a sister within the Catholic Church, a Nigerian woman, okay, and real Nigerian, culturally Nigerian, comes along, reads that text and says, well, well, can I just gently, with humility, start speaking into the conversation of all the academics, all the white guys, right? Says, uh, I feel as though you may have misunderstood what's going on in this text. Because I'd say that cultural thing going on here, what's going on at that well reminds me very much of my own culture, right? If a bloke came along and found a woman like that, she says, I've had five husbands, and now this bloke won't even marry me. The attitude would be one of, you poor woman, you have never been honoured in the way a woman should be honoured. This is appalling treatment of a woman. I'm sorry, but I think what we have here is, is Jesus himself pretty much being excluded from his own society. He meets a woman who's definitely marginalised and excluded, has not been treated as a woman should be treated. He says, I can give you life, give you water. You see, she's a Nigerian woman, a Catholic, right? There are huge differences there between us. If you want to get down to the nuts and bolts of the, the, a, a theological framework for the Christian faith, we're going to differ on things. But by living in a way, and this time we're talking about theological education, where you engage with that person and read her with hope, do you see how... She has helped us, what Paul would say here, uh, growing up into the unity, verse uh, 13, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. You see how that peaceable difference that can exist between us and this Nigerian Catholic sister can increase our 
clarity, the clarity with which we understand Christ and Christ's likeness. And do you see how that may even help us meet the challenges of this world? When someone says one day, as a result of Teresa Curie's insight, yeah, I know what Christians are like. They bash women. You know, Jesus, he called out that woman who's just uh, as though she's some adulterous person who, uh, whatever, you know. He said, oh, no, can I just speak into that situation? Actually, you're not undermining my faith at that point. Maybe it's even coming from within the church who wants to take that approach to a woman. No, 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 no. Teresa Acura. Now, she's had a look at this. And she's actually demonstrated the love and patience and kindness that Jesus showed, the life-giving approach that he took to a woman in that circumstance. I'd, I'd hope, I mean, we're a community here at Trinity that come from very different backgrounds. There'll be real, I can guarantee you, there are huge differences between us on what we think about things. We're all human, we come to scriptures with different interpretations. But if our creed is, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, then there is no room for division and fracture. But there is all the room in the world for us to learn from each other, from the gifts each of us have given, for the purpose of maturing the body of Christ and seeing it meeting the challenges of this world. Let's pray. God, we'd like to first repent of times when we have taken an arrogant, angry, impatient, perhaps even violent approach to others when we experience differences. This is just part of our own brokenness, Lord, and we ask that you would forgive us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we pray that he would work in our lives and help us to instead start living a life worthy of the calling that we have had to be part of Christ's body. We thank you for the gifts that you have given us and we pray that we would live expectantly seeing and understanding the gifts you have given each one of the people in our community here and that we would benefit from learning from one another. We pray as a result of our studies here and of our life together that we would be part of the maturing of your larger body of Christ and equipping others, ministering to others and serving others in a way that will help your church meet the challenges of living in this world. Amen.